Welcome to It's a Good Life, the podcast for entrepreneurs, where it's all about growing yourself and your business. Here's your host, founder of America's largest business coaching company, Brian Buffini. Well, top of the morning to you and welcome to It's a Good Life. Uh, Very excited about the interview we have lined up for you today. Christine Howe was a healthy 20-year-old young lady living her life had just recently discovered a love of cooking when she suddenly became faced with the life-altering reality of losing her vision. She had a lot of extreme illness uh, where her sight would diminish more and more each time. And many people we've met through that experience oftentimes feel like giving up. But even though devastated by the personal tragedy in her life not being able to see, she began a journey maybe she couldn't have imagined for herself at that time. Many of you would know the name, you would know her face from her victorious run on the hit show, Master Chef, which I have three girls, and that's their all-time favorite show. And when they saw the show, they go, Dad, you've got to interview this lady. She's amazing. Christine has gone on to bigger and better things. She's opened not only one, but two, but three restaurants, which is a job all in itself, one of the hardest businesses in the world. So, Christine, we're just delighted to have you on the show, inspired by your story. And looking forward to maybe having you share your story with a few folks out there today. Sure, Brian. Thanks for having me today. So, again, I'm sure many folks who may not be as familiar with you are very intrigued by the introduction I just gave you. But maybe um, we could just start at the beginning of your story. Where did you grow up? How did you end up getting into cooking? Sure. I was born in Southern California to two Vietnamese parents. They were immigrants from Vietnam. They were actually refugees that came over to the US in 1975, right towards the end of the Vietnam War. I was born in California, but mostly grew up in Texas, I would say. Uh, So I consider myself a Texas gal at heart. Um, I grew up, of course, eating a lot of great home cooked Vietnamese food that my mom would make for the family. I ended up losing my mom when I was fairly young at the age of 14. Uh, she had cancer for a year and then passed away. And of course, if you can imagine losing a parent when you're an adolescent, that's a really rough life experience to go through when you're so young. It's not something I expected. But growing up, I remember eating a lot of home-cooked Vietnamese food from not only her, but my grandmother as well, my aunts. And then I went off to college. And as a young adult, I didn't know how to cook really anything at all. But I moved out of the dorms after my first year of undergraduate studies into an apartment and had a a small kitchen. She had some roommates and realized that I could no longer depend on the dormitory cafeteria food. So I had to learn to cook for myself. And so I just kind of went at it, like bought cookbooks and bought some cheap knives and pots and pans and read these recipes. I did have full vision then. I was born with vision. So I read these recipes and kind of just experimented in the kitchen. It was a lot of trial and error. Uh, I realized that I did enjoy cooking. There was, uh, after many, botching many dishes, I finally cooked some dishes that were good and that my roommates and my friends actually ate and had no leftovers. So there was that moment that kind of initiated the spark of my love for cooking then. And I, I, looking back now, I realize it's, it's kind of born in the idea of being able to create something and serve other people, make other people happy with something that I've made with my own two hands. So I took on cooking as just a hobby. 
I wanted to learn everything I could about it, learn about different ingredients, how to cook different dishes, different techniques. Uh, and then simultaneously, around the same time in my life, I started experiencing vision loss. At first, it was in one of my eyes. Uh, I thought it was just a dirty contact lens. I was 20 years old at the time. So you also don't think that you're going to start experiencing something like vision loss. Like I thought losing a parent or losing your vision were things that happen when you're middle aged or later in life. So it was sudden. Uh, I went to the doctor, found out that it was actually something neurological. It turned out my optic nerve was inflamed. And after many years, I was finally correctly diagnosed with something called neuromyelitis optica or NMO for short. Uh, I'd Describe it as an autoimmune disease that primarily affects the central nervous system. It can also affect the optic nerves and the spinal cord. Uh, and over time, because I had been originally misdiagnosed with MS, I was put on therapy that wasn't working for me. So I had many bouts of optic nerve inflammation, spinal cord inflammation. Fortunately, I've been able to recover from the spinal cord injuries, but the optic nerves uh, atrophied over time because of so much inflammation. So I gradually lost my vision in my 20s and still was very uh, stubborn, I guess I would say, and determined to continue to live independently. So I taught myself uh, every time I would lose more and more vision, how to use a knife again, how to use a stove again, and taking baby steps and feeling like I had to teach myself again uh, from the beginning how to cook and how to live life independently as someone with newfound vision loss. Wild. In my real estate career, there's a unique Vietnamese community in San Diego. So I had an opportunity to serve so many Vietnamese immigrants. And, it, you know, there was an inspirational story every door, you know, whatever their walk of life was, all of a sudden disappeared and they had to start over and sometimes doing completely different things. So obviously, it's a little bit in your DNA. How can you possibly imagine a 14-year-old girl losing her mom? I mean, just devastation. And then here you are six years later, you're in college, you're living in a, you know, with your roommates, it's the best time of your life, and all of a sudden here you are. And so talk back to those days. I mean, obviously, as you go through, you're having these symptoms, you're losing your sight, you're having this spinal issue, but then one day you get a diagnosis, and it goes, here it is, you've got this NMO as you talk about. What came with that? Because everybody in America, we love the Rocky stories, right? But we often don't get to see, like, what was the emotion that came at that time? Like, I mean, were you depressed? Were you down? Were you sideways? Were you like, I'm going to give up? I mean, what were the emotions you went to until you hit that resolve button to go, I'm going to get on with this? Yeah, I think to answer that question truthfully, you, I kind of have to backtrack a little bit. I think I went through that when I experienced the the first several bouts of the vision loss um, and then the initial misdiagnosis of MS. That was the time when, um, and even going moving beyond that, like the misdiagnosis and then being put on the MS therapies that were not working, all that entire time, I remember feeling definitely sad. I was never angry, but I was sad. I felt lonely, uh, very, very frustrated because of the therapies that I was on and the treatments uh, the doctors put me on weren't working. And I was still getting worse in spite of trying different treatments. So it just felt like I kept hitting a wall with every turn I took with the treatment plans, the doctors I saw. So actually, when I finally got correctly diagnosed, and then 
the doctors put me on the right treatment for NMO patients. And I started, you know, I never recovered from the vision loss, but I stopped continuing to get attacks. Um, I didn't have any more uh, major symptoms from the disease. And to this day, I'm happy to say that I haven't experienced an attack in probably 15 years or so. Um, and so for me, like the diagnosis, the correct diagnosis of NMO and being put on the right treatment was actually a huge relief. And I was just in some ways very comforted and felt like, okay, finally, like now I can, I have the right diagnosis. I can start moving on with my life, figuring out like getting better, recovering from this, having this disease under control, and then figuring out what my next chapter in life will be. So uh, I've gone through all of that frustration before with the misdiagnosis. And to me, I I think the way I operate or my defense mechanism is because I've gone through a lot of these tough things early on in life. Uh, I would always rather know the bad news and I always expect the worst so that I can prepare myself mentally and emotionally uh, to handle it. So for me, getting the right diagnosis was very, very good news. That's great. Now, Obviously, all of a sudden, when MasterChef happens, you blow onto the scene and everybody was just so enamored with who you are and your skills and your ability to do that. But there's a whole story in between. So how do you go from 20-year-old who's relearning how to cook as your eyesight becomes more diminished? What happened between that and the time you eventually went to MasterChef? Sure. So... My undergraduate degree was in business. So I was actually working a corporate desk job. I was doing uh, software development when I had graduated from college. And then I went through all of these health issues, including a bout of paralysis where I was completely uh, immobile and paralyzed from the neck down due to a spinal cord inflammation. So uh, that recovery process actually took a long time, close to a year. And I ended up having to go on um, leave from my corporate job. And it was just so long that I ended up terminating my position at the company. And then at that point, trying to figure out, okay, well, now I have, I got better from the spinal cord inflammation, but I still have this vision loss. I need to figure out how to adapt my life now uh, with the vision loss. So I had to learn how to use a white cane, navigate public transportation, learn to read Braille, learn how to use screen readers, all of these things as now a newly visually impaired person. And so because I'd left my current job at that time, I was really soul seeking, I think at this is time trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life? What's fulfilling? I decided to go back to school for creative writing and get my master's in that. And the reason for that is growing up, I've always loved to read. I'm an avid reader. I love literature love just even writing stories. And I felt like having gone through some of the things I've gone through now, I wanted to make stories out of the experiences I've had in life. And in some way, it kind of goes back to my love for cooking is because I love creating something and sharing myself with other people. Same thing with the writing. I wanted to be able to take my experiences, put them down on paper in some way, whether it be a fictional story or personal essays or a memoir and have other people read it and find that they can relate or feel like they're not alone. So I ended up going back to school and it was, uh, you know, all this whole time I still kept, like I'd said, kept cooking and teaching myself how to cook with less and less sight. And uh, it was just still a hobby. 
But in my last semester of my grad school, I had the opportunity to audition for MasterChef. And uh, my friends and my family said, you know, I've been cooking for them for many years without vision. And they said, America needs to hear your story and see how you're able to cook uh, in spite of not being able to see. And for me, I was just like, well, you know, this would be an interesting experience. Just go off to L.A. and film. And then I thought, if anything, being a creative writing student, I would have some great material to come home and write a story about or write a humor essay, having met Gordon Ramsay. So I really went off for selfish reasons to feed my creative inspiration, not expecting to get as far as I did. Uh, so really, I, I went for that reason, but I'm also competitive and determined. And I guess I was a good enough cook to get as far as I did and ended up winning that season in 2012. And that's what launched the whole culinary side of my career and all of those opportunities. Right. And I mean, what happened for you? You just exploded on the circuit at that time. Everybody wanted to hear from you and hear what you had to say. And how did that actually show itself? How did it manifest in your life? Well, I mean, to be honest, it was a very strange experience at the beginning because I, I'm an introvert uh, and I value being anonymous and kind of just blending in with everyone else. Like I don't like attention, strangely enough, for says someone who went on television, but <laughs> I think it helped that I was visual impaired and I couldn't see all the cameras in my face. But, you know, suddenly I was a, a public figure and people knew who I was online. They would recognize me out in public or at the grocery store. Uh, and it, it took me a while to get used to that idea. And it's also different also being approached by people when you're visual impaired. It's like, I don't know when people are coming or I don't notice when people are staring. So it was a, a strange dynamic that I had to learn to get used to. And it took me quite a while. Um, and it was strangely enough hard at the beginning to get used to it. But um, I learned over the years to look at it now. It's definitely something positive and it's the opportunity to have a platform like this to uh, advocate for people with vision impairment or disabilities or women or Asian American women in the food and beverage industry. So it's given me all these uh, different doors that have opened for me to I, hopefully make a small difference in this world. So I'm grateful for that. But it, it took some time to, to get used to all of a sudden being public. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And obviously, you know, all your life has been a lot of challenges overcome. So it wasn't significant enough that you took on as an entrepreneur, the most difficult business there is to make a living in, which is the restaurant business. And we all know the failure rates and we all know what happens. And now you have not one, but two, but three restaurants. So talk as an entrepreneur. How did you go about starting these businesses? How'd you build these businesses? I've got to imagine the visual impairment is challenging in regards to running a, running a business and staff and mm -hmm. those kinds of things. So talk a little bit about starting your businesses and how you run it today. Sure. Um, so I waited actually seven years before I opened my very first uh, food establishment after winning MasterChef. Like everyone was asking right after the show, like, when are you going to open a restaurant? When are you going to open something? And in my head, which I've also said publicly, I'm like, just because I'm a great home cook and I won a TV competition doesn't mean I suddenly know how to be a professional chef and run 
a commercial kitchen in a restaurant, let alone be someone who's visually impaired and doing someone who's never had any experience in the restaurant industry. So I took my time. Uh, and in 2019, I had the opportunity to open a very small food station in a food hall. So it was only 400 square feet. And that's when I opened the blind goat in 2019. And it was a modern Vietnamese eatery. I kind of wanted to take street foods of Vietnam and my favorite dishes growing up and put a modern twist on it as a Texas gal. And then the pandemic hit. And then I had to deal with all of that as a restaurant owner. Oh, and then I remember thinking just in general, the restaurant or the food and beverage industry is just so difficult and challenging. Like you'd said, like the margins are thin. You have to deal with hiring, staffing, training, um, that I feel like that often is the hardest part in any sort of business ownership is people management or people skills. Uh, and then just with the rising costs of ingredients, things happening with supply chain during the pandemic, um, and then having our doors shut down uh, for health and safety reasons and trying to figure out new revenue streams. They were all very challenging, but I talked to a lot of other fellow restaurant owners in the industry who've been in working in restaurants for decades. And they said, Christine, if you can survive COVID with your restaurants, then this is by far the hardest challenge that we've ever had to deal with having been in the restaurant industry for several decades. So if you survive this, then you pretty much can do anything. So I just kind of took that to heart and tried my best. And it was hard. There were a lot of tears going through the COVID pandemic and just trying to figure out how to keep the doors open and have my staff still make paychecks and make ends meet. But I I felt like I was able to do it with the small food station. I ended up uh, opening up a second restaurant called Sinjiao with a business partner. During the pandemic, we actually signed the lease before the pandemic started. So rent started accumulating and we were like, well, I guess this COVID thing is, is in it for the long haul. So we got to figure out how to open the doors. Um, so we had to make that work. And then since then, I actually just very recently got out of the partnership at Sinchow. I wanted to focus on the blind goat because we moved it out of the food hall and into its own full scale brick and mortar restaurant now. Uh, and then I opened up the, my third concept, Stuff Belly, which is a drive-through quick service restaurant that is doing classic good old American sandwiches with my own fun personal twists on them. Uh, I had done two Vietnamese restaurants. I kind of wanted to go veer in a different direction. And because I grew up, I was born and raised in the U.S., of course, I ate a lot of classic American sandwiches growing up on road trips or at friends' houses or on play dates. So I, I kind of wanted to do something like that. So I just kept at it and it's a lot of hard work, but I, I think I've learned a lot as an entrepreneur and as a restaurant owner. Um, but I've been fortunate that I have a great business partner who's also my husband and a really great staff and team that helps me carry out my vision in spite of me not having the site. Yes. Yes. No, I understand. I understand that. There's a lot of people who have site but no vision. That's brilliant. And wh the restaurants, they're all, are they in Houston? Is that where they're located? Or where are they Yes. Are? Stuff Belly and the Blind Goat are both in Houston right now. I'm looking to uh, eventually expand Stuff Belly as the, the quick service restaurant. I think it's an easier concept to, to grow and scale. So we're looking into that. And the Blind Goat is just a one and done deal. But uh, it's kind of my pet project where I pour a lot of my uh, creativity and, and love and passion into Vietnamese food there. A question hit me just while you're talking here. How do you know 
how do you know, obviously you have your husband who's obviously your right hand. I would imagine it would be very hard to if you can't really connect with people visually. How do you trust people? How do you develop trust with people? How how do you go about it? Do you do you listen more intently? Is it uh, how do you know who to trust? I think actually not having vision helps me actually made my people skills better. I think it because I, I'm glad that now when I meet people, I don't see what ha- what they look like. I don't see how they dress. I don't know like how what their hairstyles like, what the color of their skin is, piercings, tattoos. Like I don't know anything. I can only hear their voice. So for me, I think to be, it's much easier to not be swayed by any sort of biases that we grew up with, perhaps in our society. So for me, I find it easier to treat everyone equally when I meet them. And, and I am a firm believer in giving people, everybody opportunities. And so for me, I mean, trust d- definitely for everyone, whether you're sighted or visually impaired happens over time. I tend to be a trusting person, but once you, you know, ruin that, yeah. then I will always remember, <laughs> but I, I like to trust people and you have to trust people, I think. And I'm sure you understand this, Brian, when you own a business, unless you want to do it all by yourself, which eventually becomes impossible. If you want to grow, you do have to trust people to be able to do their job. That's brilliant. I, I just, what I'm getting from it is your gift is you get to sit down with people and have no judgment or preconceived notions of who they are. You're listening to their voice and you're, yeah, yeah, it's almost uh, listening to their heart more so. Uh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Like God is good. There's always some gifts on the other side. You know, you have so many challenges. You've overcome it. You have such a great spirit about you. How have you maintained such a positive outlook on life, having been through so many setbacks? You know, Brian, I think thinking back to when I said that period in my life where I was starting to lose my vision and I was incorrectly diagnosed and in my 20s, that was one of the toughest periods of my life in, you know, not to mention in my teenage years when you're an adolescent, that's already tough, but then losing a parent then. I think that I've already kind of gone through some of the toughest things that life can throw at you. And I dealt with all the sadness and the grief then, and it took a long time. It took just time passing. It took uh, being able to talk to other people, um, thinking about my own strengths and trying to find meaning in things that happen to me and trying to also turn negative things into something positive and kind of learning to play the hand that I was dealt, I guess. And so now I feel like a lot of times that challenges that come to me, it's not easy, but I look back and I realize having the life experience and the maturity level that I have now as someone who's in their 40s, I know that I can survive it uh, and I can figure out a way and there's always a way. And I, I believe that we have choices and that we have options and I don't ever want to feel like I'm backed up against a wall and I don't have a choice. I try to change my mindset so that I know everything is a choice that I can make and I have control. Um, I may not have control of everything that happens, but every time something happens, I have control of how I'm, I think about it, how I deal with it and the next step I take. Uh, so I think that sort of attitude and that mindset has kept me positive. And it's all relative, like looking back and thinking about the tough experiences I've been through. Now it's like all the challenges that come that come now are just 
kind of like, oh, well, it's another thing of stress, but I can deal with it. I know I can get through it. And how do I problem solve? Yeah. So that's kind of my mentality now. That's brilliant. Brilliant words to live by. Words to live by, Christine. We're very thankful. You know, as I finish up here today, we uh, obviously we're going to encourage people to go check out the Blind Goat and also the the stuffed belly down there in Houston. We have a huge following in Texas, so um, in fact, we'll be doing an event down there later this year. So we'll we'll bang up the drum to make sure folks are getting out to the stuffed belly. But um, we finish up our our podcast with some rapid fire questions for all our guests, and it just gives kind of a different perspective on life. So here here's the first one for you, Christine. What's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? Trust your gut or your instincts. Who gave you that? I had to learn that, I think, a very hard way, just growing up and and learning to trust myself more than what other people feed into my ears. Mm, Brilliant, brilliant. What's the one talent or gift you wish you possessed that you don't? (laughs) Uh, I wish I could speak five different languages (laughs) fluently. What book has been most instrumental in your life? You love the creative process. You love reading. Give me a book that's really been influential for you. Um, influential. I would have to say one of the most memorable books uh, would be one I read in grad school. Um, and this kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, and I may not be able to really articulate how it was I guess, instrumental to me, but I think just it allowed me to think of the creative writing process in a different way and how you can tell a beautiful story by just using different vignettes. Um, but it's a book called Mrs. Bridge by Evan S. Cannell. And um, this book is written in about a housewife from, I believe, the mid uh, 20th century. And it's told in beautiful vignettes and you feel her emotions um, through the vignettes of, that tell her life story and how she is as a, a wife and a mother. But for me, I think that was enlightening in the, the way you can tell a story in a different style. So it's a fiction novel. Love the creativity. That's brilliant. Brilliant. Mrs. Bridge, we'll have to get it on the list. That's fabulous. I often ask people what movies do they watch over and over, but I'm going to ask you what songs that really are meaningful to you that you listen to over and over again. Oh, um... Well, I mean, I always go back to the Beatles, a lot of stuff. My favorite album is Abbey Road. I grew up with the Beatles because my parents loved it. And so um, I find myself listening to that to this day. But other songs, I would say, like, I'm strangely enough, always drawn to Queen and Abba, too. I guess I'm an old soul for my age. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) That tells me all I need to know. Queen and Abba, that's great. Dancing Queen herself. (laughs) Last but not least for Christine Ha, what does the good life mean to you? The good life means being confident and comfortable in your own skin and not caring as much about what other people think or say about you and trusting your own gut to do what you love. Beautiful stuff. Well, what a wonderful time it's been to spend with you today, Christine. You have a marvelous story. It's so inspirational. I know it'll be so encouraging. People will be listening to this right before Valentine's Day. And I know they're going to love your story and love you and love your food and your restaurants and much continued success to you. You are an inspiration. You have a great story. And thanks for taking some time to be with us today. Thank you, Brian. And another inspirational woman has helped me along the way is my mother, Therese. 93 years of age and still uh, firing people up wherever she goes, 
all the way back in Dublin, Ireland. She's going to leave us with a little blessing here today. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.